Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. We're going to be there for a little bit. They say that a picture is worth a thousand words, but I found that people love stories more than pictures. And I don't know if you realize it or not, but over 43% of the Bible is in narrative. It's a narrative. And God, as our creator, knows that we all love to hear stories. Today is the resurrection story. And we celebrate the culmination of Christ's first advent, he rose from the dead. As I mentioned earlier uh, during the pastoral prayer, it's hard for us, isn't it? Because we're so blessed to really let this truth grab hold of our hearts. It's easier for the Ukrainians. It's easier for the people out in the jungles that see what happens to a body when it dies, which strikes fear into their hearts, which makes them then call out for help somehow. Uh, For us, it's difficult, right? I've preached a, a lot of sermons on the resurrection And many of them have focused on the theological elements, and I've stressed the doctrine of the resurrection, and that's good theology. Doctrine is important. And I'll even dip down a little bit into doctrine and theology today, but I want it to be a story. I want you to listen to it like a story. We know that the resurrection must be believed in in order for someone to experience salvation, according to Romans chapter 10. Objective truth, truth that is outside of a person's opinion or feelings, that is just true and stands on its own, is very important. But there's also a subjective side to the resurrection story. And we should never forget that Jesus' resurrection rocked the world. It rocked his disciples. It changed them in from, from cowering uh, people in an upper room into fearless preachers of the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Even getting arrested, even being beaten. They were unafraid because, hey, what's the worst that can happen to us? We die, but he rose from the dead. And that gripped them. We should never forget that Jesus' resurrection was witnessed not just by a small tight-knit group, which it was, his disciples and the women that followed him, but to well over 500 who witnessed it and were still alive at the time of Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. Let me read just the first 10 chapters of, or first 10 verses of chapter 28 in Matthew, first 10 chapters. I'm tired from my break, I'm sorry. (laughs) Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. The other Gospels inform us that there were other women with him. Uh, There wasn't just these two. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it in his appearance was like lightning in his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear 
of him and became like dead men. Now, there's, there's a pause here that we don't really catch just reading it because we read the very next uh, verse, which says, the angel said to the women. <laughs> um, those guards weren't there at that time. They had already left, okay? So there's a little bit of time lapse here when that earthquake took place and that angel rolled away the stone and the guards were struck almost like dead and they came to and they went and reported what had happened. And then the angel said to the women who now showed up, do not be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified, meaning he died. He was put to death on a cross. He is not here for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so the women left the tomb, and quickly, with fear and great joy, they ran to report it to the disciples. I don't know if you noticed, the fear and the great joy, that's not objective truth. That's very subjective. They were fearful. This is awesome. This is like knocked them out of the park, right? But they're also overjoyed at the potential of the fact that he had actually risen from the dead. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Marvelous truths. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this magnificent story, let it grip our hearts fresh today. May we understand anew the wonder of the fact that he went over death. We do not need to be afraid of death. In a year or two years of pandemic, where there was much fear everywhere. God, what do we have to be afraid of? Father, let your resurrection story grip us today and just decimate the fear that's in our hearts and replace it with great joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to just talk about a number of things and, and, and to start I have to do a little bit of doctrine. I can't just tell you a story. But I want to do a little bit of doctrine. So let me give you a couple of theological implications of the resurrection. Number one, it ensures justification. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is very important because it ensures justification. Justification is the act of God where he declares. It's a declaration that believers are not guilty but righteous before him. This is a crystal clear thought in Paul's words from Romans 4.25 where he says this, he, Jesus, was delivered over, meaning put to death, because of our transgressions. And if you were here on Friday evening, we read uh, Isaiah 53 where he bore our transgressions. And he was raised because of our justification. Our justification is dependent upon the fact that the resurrection is true. When Jesus raised from the dead, it was God's declaration of approval of Christ's work of redemption. He was saying by the resurrection, your work is complete, son. It is finished. And so Jesus said. 
There is no more penalty left to pay for sin, no more wrath of God to bear, no more guilt or liability to punishment. It has all been completed, paid for. It is finished. That is the gospel truth that we as believers need to rest in. What do we have to be afraid of? Nothing is the answer. Nothing. There is no reason for Jesus to remain dead any longer. And so God raised him from the dead as a recognition of his satisfaction with his death. And don't forget, we enjoy the fruit of that resurrection through justification, but that satisfaction was given to God, his Father, in payment for sin. Ephesians 2 tells us he raised us up with him. So if God raised him up, which he did, and Ephesians tells us he raised us up with him, then by virtue of God's declaration of approval of Christ, he also has declared his approval of us because we're in Christ. Stop trying to please a God that's already satisfied. If I give you a gift and you say, oh, let me enhance this gift, what's that saying to me, the gift giver? Don't be like that. Do you understand it is finished? Do you understand you cannot get any more pleasing to God than you are in Christ Jesus? That's the gospel. So important we understand these things. Secondly, the resurrection ensures regeneration. Regeneration means to be born again. 1 Peter 1.3 says, We have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, he had a new quality of life. He had a resurrection life. And his physical body and human spirit were perfectly suited for fellowship and obedience to God forever. Now, while we remain on the earth as born-again Christians, as regenerate people, it is true that we didn't receive all of the blessings won for us through Christ's resurrection because our physical bodies are still the beachhead of sin. Just read Romans chapter 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do do. Why? Because of this body of death, this physical body somehow or other harbors the element of sin. It's called the sin that dwells within us. And it will dwell within us until we're resurrected at the end or we are glorified at the rapture of Jesus Christ. Because we'll shed this mortality and take on immortality and then be suited for heaven and no longer will we have that stain of sin on us any longer. Now, the power of sin has been broken for the believer so that we can say no to any temptation that comes to us. We have the power to say no to sin, right? But the presence of sin remains with us until we're glorified. Now, listen to this in Ephesians 2. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. It's a gift. And he raised us up with him. His resurrection ensures the potential for sinners to become regenerate or born again. 
And in that rebirth, because of his resurrection, we have resurrection life. Life that provides the power to live godly. Even on this earth. Even with sin dwelling within us. Thirdly, the resurrection ensures glorified bodies for everyone who believes. A glorified body. It's kind of like you get a new car. But it's a new body. It's way better in a new car. This theology we can really get excited about, especially the older we get. Things don't work as well. Boy, Florida was great with the humidity. Everything just functioned. You know, there was, I came back and it was snowing. I'm, I'm not going to complain about the weather in Minnesota. It's a, that's a deep hole to fall into. Don't, don't do that. This is important, right? It ensures that someday every believer will enjoy a resurrection body, like the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And again, 2 Corinthians 4.14 says, He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Now, Paul's teaching on resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 refers to Jesus as the first fruits of, of those who have died, the first fruits. The rest of us will follow. We can rejoice over the resurrection of Jesus Christ as we contemplate what it means to us personally, and we can say with John, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we'll be like him. We will also have resurrected bodies because we will see him just as he is, 1 John 3, 2. So those are a couple of the objective truths that we can glean from the scripture regarding the resurrection. Now, I want to share just a couple subjective responses to the resurrection taken from Matthew 28. Easter is the most emotion-packed story in the Bible. The truth it brings is the greatest personal impact on everyone who hears and believes it. Because those who hear and believe accept the truth that Jesus Christ died for them personally and it is all validated by his resurrection and they glory in that truth. It changes their lives forever. The first gospel, Matthew, describes the resurrection as we enter into the garden where Jesus was buried. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came and, and to look at the grave. And, and the first thing that we hear about the massive earthquake came as the angel rolled the stone away. And it's all more than the guards that were protecting the tomb could take. Notice the words and notice the emotion here. The guards, they were filled with fear. They were filled with fear, but they missed the great joy. They were just filled with fear. And it brought a death-like immobility with it. They felt something. Fear is fabas. It means dread or tear, a feeling of unsettledness, a, a, a sense of being completely out of control. It's kind of like when we first experienced the first uh, tremors of earthquakes over in Indonesia, being a guy from the middle of the United States, earthquakes were brand new, right? And we heard the palm trees rattling 
off a distance. I said, what is that? It sounded like a train coming. And then all of a sudden, the whole house started shaking. I, I wanted to run outside. And they said, don't run outside. You'll get hit by coconuts. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew, right? I mean, but, but the sense of complete lack of control. Where do you run and hide from an earthquake? There is no place. You just kind of hunker down and hope it passes. So that fear that those women felt was real, that fear that the men felt was real, it said it made them like dead men, necklos. It means without life, inactive, without animation. They were struck. They were alive, but they couldn't move. I don't know. I've been fearful like that in dreams. Have you ever been fearful like that in a dream where you just can't move? Scared to death, right? That's what was happening there. And the women also, their experience shows such a swing of emotions all the way from fear to great joy. Megas. Great. Mega mall. The biggest mall ever. Great joy, right? Their fear was real, fabas, the same word, but it was measured against or balanced with mega joy. And it caused them to worship. They fell down at his feet in adoration. Now, in Mark, it tells us about the women. And it says that they were amazed. That means to be struck with astonishment and thrown into almost a terror, to be alarmed. King James Version says they were affrighted. <laughs> That's why we read the New American Standard, the ESV. And NIV, right? They trembled, literally possessed by a fit of trembling. Okay. When, they, when they saw that he had resurrected, they were astonished. And this verb is linked to trembled by a little conjunction and. So they trembled and were astonished. The compound word meaning ek, out from, and stasis, standing. They were knocked down by this whole thing. Amazed. A state of ecstatic wonderment. The disciples in Mark 16, when the women brought the news to Jesus' disciples, found them in a terrible state. And I don't know if it was due to their deep grief that they had witnessed his death and were still grieving about that, or if they were... It was due to the fact that they disbelieved the women's report. But it says that they were mourning. That's grief over death. It's lamentation. In, in the East, they wail. They wail to show their grief and mourning. They were weeping, brought to tears by deep mourning. The end of the process, it is the result of a deep grief over death. This is not just some static, objective truth here. This is intense feeling and emotion. But they were in disbelief. They did not believe the report that he had risen. And then you go to Luke chapter 24 and you read about these two guys taking a walk. 
They're taking a walk. They're walking down the road. This is after the crucifixion, after the Sabbath. And so it's the next morning, first day. Okay? While these guys were getting up early to go on their walk to another village, Mary and the other woman were going to the tomb. So it's the same time frame, right? And they're walking, and along comes Jesus up alongside them. It's just beautiful. Turn there real quickly to Luke chapter 24, and let me point out just a couple of things. It's probably one of my most favorite, favorite stories. It's not 24, I'm sorry. Yes, it is. Okay. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were uh, talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. You see, they thought that Jesus was Messiah, but they killed him. (laughs) That was cause for discussion. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And and they stood still, looking sad. Emotion again. And one of them said, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things have happened. Hint, hint. (laughs) But also some women among us amazed us when They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, oh, foolish men and slow of heart. They didn't believe it. They were in their disbelief. And so they were sad and mourning the death of Jesus Christ. Amazing. Now, they had the witness of the women. They had the witness of the two, I believe Peter and John, that ran to the tomb and came back and said, it's, it's, he's not there. They believed the lie, probably, that somebody had stolen him. Jesus says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And here it is. Then beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the Pentateuch, the five books. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. And their response, didn't our hearts burn within us? Tell you what, that's not an objective truth. (laughs) They felt something deeply Now, I'd like to give a personal testimony of a real-life illustration of the power of the resurrection. I'm taking it from an eyewitness account. My eyes, my witness of an event. And I've shared this before, so if you've heard it before, just enjoy it once again. 
because I enjoy it and I never tire of telling of it. I've been blessed to observe a first-hand experience of the emotions of Easter. Why? I don't know. It's kind of like my salvation. I don't know why. The time was July 10th and 11th of 1987. This July will make it 35 years ago. Amazing. And the place was a remote island in eastern Indonesia called Taleabo. The event was the preaching of the gospel to a previously unreached language group, a very isolated and primitive people who had never heard of the Bible, God, creation, or Jesus Christ. Ever. Ever. First time. Mary and I had moved in to live among these people about four and a half years earlier, and we had spent thousands, and I tallied it up, it was over nine and a half thousand hours of language study. Learning their language and their culture, and and our entire rationale for being there with those people was about to be realized because we had gone to Indonesia to preach the gospel to people who had never heard the gospel before, and the Taliabal really fit that profile. Six months earlier, we had begun to lay the foundation for the gospel as we began to teach the Taliabo about creation from the book of Genesis. That's where we began teaching. And we had taught for six months, painstakingly taking each narrative of the Old Testament leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. They came to understand that people are sinful through our teaching and their own lives affirm that truth on a daily basis. And all through the months of teaching, we instilled within their hearts and minds that God is a sovereign creator, and that he is just, and he is a holy lawgiver. We taught them the Ten Commandments. Because of his own perfect and holy nature, he hates sin. Sin is what separates people from God. And in Romans, it tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we also taught that he is a faithful promise keeper and that he promised to send a deliverer, a promised one that would take care of the sin problem and reunite people with their creator. So over the previous six months, the people were always looking for this promised one. And each new story that we would tell, they'd say, is, is that him? Is that him? They clearly understood that they were accountable to a holy and a just God and that God was going to judge them. But they were also aware that all through the Old Testament, God made a way of escape from his judgments and they believed their escape would come through this promised one. But where was he? Six months they still hadn't discovered him. Imagine the overwhelming sense of joy that they experience when they listen to the words of John the Baptist say, Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. They knew it right there. I mean, we didn't have to say anything. They understood immediately. The promised one, this is him. He takes away the sins of the world. This is the one we've been waiting for. Six months. From that moment on, they listened intently as we explained the life of Jesus and all the incredible miracles that he performed. And honestly, they fell in love with him. They fell in love with him because he was delivering people from all the things they feared, hunger, 
sickness, even death. And although they did not quite understand how he would provide their way of escape from their sins and from the judgment of God, they still loved him. So as the weeks went on, we came to the last week in the life of Christ, the Passion Week, and they were exuberant to see his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which Greg brought to us last, last week. And they were identifying with the throngs singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the people identified him as the long-awaited promised one sent by God to deliver people from sin. But their jubilation changed to shock. For on Friday, July 10th, when we told them of Judas' betrayal of Jesus, his arrest in the garden, and how horribly the soldiers treated him, mocking him, whipping him, and even plucking the hair of his beard from his face, they experienced some of the emotions that the remnant of faithful Jews and even his own disciples felt as they saw all these things take place before their very eyes. The Taliabo were hearing this for the very first time, and they had no idea how it would turn out. They had never heard this story before ever. But this was their promised one. And so they hung on every word spoken. And as we taught them of Christ's death on the cross and recounted as I did on Friday evening the seven last words of Christ on the cross, finishing with the words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, we stopped there. Friday night, we just stopped there. It was completely silent. Hundreds of Taliabo people sitting on a raised bamboo platform and you could have heard a pin drop. We asked them not to come to our homes that night to discuss the story like they usually did, but rather to go home and just think about what they had heard. And many sat with their heads in their hands, not knowing what to do. Some got up and slowly began to make their way home and no one was speaking as they shuffled off into the village and into the night. Like Mary Magdalene, we were up at the crack of dawn. Next morning, I was reading over the lesson that I would be teaching the people that day, and we prayed, and I read over the material again, and we prayed again, and our stomachs were in knots with anticipation. What would God do with these people? Because we didn't know. How would they receive the message of the resurrection? Did we use the right Taliabo words to communicate this most, most important message in all the world to these people? We prayed again and we left for the meeting house. It was somber. <laughs> Everybody had come, but they were still absolutely quiet. And like the disciples of old, there is weeping and there is mourning. And I'm certain there was an awful lot of confusion in their minds and hearts. Because they knew that Jesus was the Son of God, the promised one, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. But as one old tribal man said as they leaving the house that night before, my hope is dead. They killed Jesus on the cross. They didn't know the end of the story. <laughs> and so I preached the words of the angel to the women. He is not here. He is risen. (laughs) It was as though a jolt of electricity went through the hundreds scattered 
and seated on the floor, listening so intently. There was a sucking in of their breath. (gasps) I'm not kidding you. Talk about emotion. I was a dish rag. The old man who had stopped and stated that his hope was dead just the night before was the very first one to speak, and his words were simple and true. Well, if that's true, thank you. That's all. He was in. He was in. If that's true, thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. And the emotion of Easter took full control of the group. There was great joy, mega joy, and worshiping. So many had just believed, and they just couldn't stop smiling. That's the thing that I recognize and remember. They just kept smiling. They were all just smile glued on their face. That stayed for days. They just were overwhelmed. There were tears too, but no longer the tears of mourning. Jesus was alive. Their hope rose from the dead. They had never heard of anything like it, although their entire culture, their entire culture had one goal, to discover eternal life. And they just had. There was an overwhelming sense of relief as they contemplated the promised one was alive. They marveled at God's epic story, and some literally trembled and shook with emotion at their first Easter as we shared the rest of the story with them. And one by one, over a hundred taliabo, like Mary Magdalene of old, they heard their Lord say their name, and they believed. And had Jesus been there physically, I am quite certain they would have thrown themselves down and worshipped him, clinging as Mary did to his feet, not wanting to ever let him go. That's the emotion of Easter, people. That's what needs to grip our hearts. And it grieves me that it doesn't. Because we're so spoiled and so satiated. With what? The world. That we're not even aware. Not even gripped by the power of the resurrection story. And then some of us don't believe it. We're like those two walking down the road. We just refuse to believe the word of God that says he is risen. Can you join Mary Magdalene and the disciples and Natalia Abel with their exultant praise this morning? Well, I pray that it's so for you. I really do. Because that means you know him personally. That means that you have been born again. That means that God has declared you righteous on account of Jesus. And you will receive a glorified body and you will rejoice forever and ever because you have been rejoined together with your creator through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this resurrection story and the power that it has to transform lives from dark night into bright shining day to make sinners those who want to follow you in obedience and gratefulness. Dear God, I pray if anyone is here today grappling with these things that they would just humble themselves and give up and say it is true, I am sinful. Thank you. Thank you for dying on my behalf and thank you God for accepting that sacrifice and raising Jesus from the dead. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name.